0: Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode number 73. This is my very last episode as a 39-year-old man. I turned 40 in just over 48 hours from now, as I sit here and record this uh, late evening or late in the night on Saturday night, September 25th. So a well, wifey's out to dinner with one of her best friends to celebrate both of their birthdays earlier this month really excited about the 40th, having a nice pizza dinner on Tuesday with uh, the immediate family, my parents and my in-laws, then a nice celebration next weekend, which I'll get into on the next episode with, uh, with friends over uh, many, many cocktails. So um, on this episode, on the topic of turning 40, I will have a few reflections as I head into my fifth decade of life. Yes, 40s is your fifth decade for anybody counting at home that might be confused. When you finish your fifth decade, you turn 50. So I'm gonna talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly over the first 40 years of my life on this earth. And uh, for you friends and fans of the pod, you know Chris Hamm likes himself a good philosophical spin every so often. So I'm gonna gonna give some reflections philosophically rather than just give some kind of a recap I'm gonna I'm gonna look look ahead on what life could be over the next, God willing, five more decades. But because we are on the eve of the week three of the NFL season, I'm gonna start with sports. So if you're not into that, make sure you you look at the episode outline, you fast forward accordingly, um, and listen from when the NFL portion ends. I'm also gonna give some reflections about the Jets and the Yankees, but um, I am going to talk about the ham, hot, sharp, butternut picks against the spread first, which is off to a good start. Uh, So that's going to be the the beginning of the episode after this intro. But as we open the show every so often, uh, Jen or I, um, one of us is going to be on solo duty with the kids because the other person has plans, which is the case tonight. And it's reciprocated plenty. And um, when you're with both kids... Uh, or with your kids in in general, however many you have, one, two, three, five, a lot of times when it's just you as the parent with them, their their biggest challenges du jour, so to speak, at this phase in their childhood development, jump out like a sore fucking thumb. And Jen and I are well aware of them together, and we often talk about challenges and the pros and the the beautiful parts of them as well as people, but when one of us is alone, these challenges are often accentuated. Sometimes you get an easier night than you expect, but you're still very well, well aware of the challenges. So our big one, Eloise, we call her the shark. When she is awake, she doesn't stop moving. She's a heavy sound sleeper when she does fall asleep, but her aversion to sleep is really something for the, for the books. It's something, it's, she's stubborn about being tired since about two and a half or so, more than half her life at this point. And even with the ability to communicate with her about the benefits of sleep, um, with a good level of depth, uh, a good level of depth at age five to be able to get into that, um, we cannot figure out for the life of us why she just doesn't like to sleep. And it doesn't even matter if there's something exciting going on the next day, if she's amped up from the day, it just, com- it's completely random. She, you know, she said she has nightmares, but I can count on one hand the amount of time she has woken up shook from a dream. But really 85% or so of the time, she's operating on a fucking sleep deficit and she's perpetually tired. And when she is tired, she's like a drunk. Jen and I call her her, her the drunk. She's more injury prone. She's slugging around all over the place. She's a lower attention span. She wants to snack rather than sit down and eat a meal. When she's eating a meal, it's, it's like she's going to catch a train. It's a challenge. So that's the biggest challenge right now with her as we sit here she is uh, about five years and two months old. Now, our little one, Emmy, um, I started throwing around the nickname Little Gotti or our little mob boss with Jen. She's like a mob boss. She's cuddly, she's sweet, she's smart and a character. But boy, she gets moody at times. Uh, so often we have to reprimand her for her moodiness and stay calm. And you know, with, with Eloise, we never really understood situations. We were out in public and all of a sudden, like, a, a kid would randomly start screaming. Um, <laughs> starting to get the picture with Emmy now, what that, what that could be like. Uh, she's a very loud pitch at certain times. But, you know, we often hope it's, it's, it's a sort of young toddler phase. But for an 18-month-old, the rest of the three of us in the house, and the four of us if you count Bruno, we feel like we're walking on eggshells sometimes. And we want to keep the, the boss lady happy, not to rattle her mood. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of walking that line between that and, and just get some good solid discipline to, to bury this habit as she gets older. But we will be interesting to see how they continue to grow up and also how number three turns out. The um, quote Kramer from Seinfeld, Mother Nature is a is a mad scientist It <laughs> applies to many situations. It's certainly the case with personalities of people and your kids. Even if you think you raise them under similar circumstances, similar approaches, they can be different circumstances. It's just a freaking crapshoot. So, uh, really interesting. I will say this though. Well, it is more jarring going from zero kids to one kid. It definitely was, and, and to, even before that, going from just Jen and I to getting Bruno as a dog, that was the most jarring. But going from zero to one, we have always said, was much harder for us than going from one to two. But I will say, having two kids, having multiple kids, a level of fatigue has manifested that just is incessant and that's something that that wasn't the case with, with just one kid and uh to use my my catchphrase i use on this show we better buckle the fuck up for number three that's for sure but we're really excited about it we're now about four months four months four and a half less than four and a half months away from baby boy ham coming coming into the the fold here at our, our ham Ham-O-E-C household so um so coming up on this show as i mentioned nfl followed by some philosophy. Some back to having some totes on the show, takes of all temperatures, might rebrand the name back to Rants, but for now, we're going to still call them totes. Um, But coming up now, we're going to do, as I mentioned, the the NFL ham hot Shop butter knife pick. So buckle up. Episode number 73. Here we go. Okay, so the ham butter knife off to a hot, not a chili jalapeno pepper hot, but a good 70% start. At 7-3 and three through the first 10 games of the NFL season as far as picks, uh, I mentioned on my NFL preview pod, I am not unbiased when it comes to the Jets, which I'll get to after, after I, I go through the picks. But I try to use them selectively and a few times a year only. I look pretty fucking stupid for my week two pick against the Pats uh, with the Jets. Uh, but nonetheless, with the Jets or anybody else, and who, anybody who, who loses for me throughout the year, let's not forget one thing, ladies and gentlemen. This is a week-to-week league in the NFL, okay? A seasoned professional handicapper or wise guy doesn't flinch at the ebbs and flows of seasons, doesn't get emotionally down on a team or up on a team um, at all, and stays away from the grand proclamations about teams being good and shitty. You know, between week one and week 18 now, you will probably see three to five different seasons, so to speak. So regardless of where you are as you head into week three, take a deep breath, okay? Take a deep breath. It's all gonna be okay. And again, let's not get emotionally attached to a team. Let's not feel angry at a team because they screwed you the last week. Let's not get overly happy and ride a team when the fundamentals and the, the, the betting market has changed and it's time to pivot, all right? Let's keep a level head about this. Um, so for week two, I didn't release an episode, and I won't be every single week. But what I will try to do is to do at least a Twitter video of all the picks or at least one or two key ones as I did last week. I did all, the, all five picks last week. So if you, if you are a fan of the pod and you aren't following me on Twitter, what are you doing? All right? Chris N. Ham on Twitter. Follow me. Retweet me. Get me some more traffic. All right? And it's, it's something that I'm going to try to continue to, to be consistent on. This year, Um, you're you're three now for the pod. Uh, I'm going to have a a bigger Twitter presence. And you are going to have to get my NFL content sometimes just on Twitter because I'm not going to, as I mentioned, do it every week on here. But without further ado, I am doing week three. So the ham, hot, sharp, butter knife, picks against the spread for week three. Here we go. Okay. Let's start in Orchard Park, New York, where the Buffalo Bills right now are a touchdown favorite against the Washington football team. For this, give me the Washington football team plus seven. All right, listen, I picked the Bills as the AFC representative in the Super Bowl, and even with Josh Allen really stinking it up the first two weeks, not really looking like the MVP candidate, uh, except for a few throws that we all thought he would be, I still think there's plenty of time for them to get well and be a dominant team. Yes, Bo, but here's the thing. They won 35-0 last week, but that score was misleading as Miami didn't convert on multiple goal-to-go opportunities. Tua went down. I think Tua sucks anyway. Brissette came in, but he wasn't practicing with the first team all week. So take that loss with a grain of salt. But teams that win by the margin that Buffalo did last week often get fat, drunk, and happy and nail it in the next week to the tune of barely 40% against the spread. Over a hundred game sample size. If you're, if you're going back and looking at over hundred games recently in recent history, not to mention on top of that, if you look at September teams that have won by large margins, the next week they're one for eleven covering the spread. Right, Washington. Let's not forget, had a few extra days off because they had that Thursday night exhilarating win against the the, uh, the New York Giants. It's Tyler Henneke's first start on the road. I get it, Hustle environment going to Buffalo. All right, doesn't matter to me. All right, big fucking deal. The guy has an intangible about him. All right, I'm not saying he's the next coming of uh, Joe Theismann, but the guy wasn't afraid of Tom Brady in the playoffs last year. With Tampa, was red hot. Tampa won, but Washington made it interesting. So why would a regular season week three game shake the guy? Ron Rivera teams. you go back to his Carolina days. Don't get blown out that often. The defense is one of the better units in football coming into the year. Hasn't had a strong showing. It I expect it here. of the tickets on Washington but nearly a quarter of the the money signaling sharp action on Washington. So give me, for my first pick, Washington football team plus seven at the Buffalo Bills. Let's travel to Foxborough where New England, the New England Patriots, are a field goal favorite against the New Orleans Saints. I'm going the other way here. Give me the New Orleans Saints plus three. Look, I'm a Jets fan. I'm bitter about the Patriots in general my whole life, definitely my last two decades of life with the, the Bill Belichick era and mostly the Tom Brady era with Bill Belichick. All right. But this is not, this is not your father's Patriots team. All right. Bill Belichick is still to me the best damn coach in, in the NFL. All right. But I was not that impressed with Mac Jones last week. The Jets got their asses kicked because. Zach Wilson had four interceptions. And but like that score could have been a lot worse with a better quarterback, a more explosive quarterback. Mac Jones is a game manager. All right. New Orleans is off a, a tough loss to Carolina with a very tough defensive front, a much better Carolina team than I think we're all acknowledging at this point. All right. Seamus Winston had a rough game. He was bad Jameis week two. He was great Jameis week one against the, the Green Bay Packers. But I think they're going to right the ship here. I think they're going to come in with a disciplined game. Uh, their their coaches had COVID last week. Their coaches are, are kind of getting healthier, um, getting back with the team. Um, so I expect that you know Sean Payton's one of the best coaches in the league. I for, for you know for, for for me I think he's a top top five top seven coach in the NFL. Um, we're not talking about weather elements. It's it's really nice in the Northeast this time of the year, and so I like the New Orleans Saints to go have a very competitive game with a very good chance to win. And if they lose, they're not going to lose by much. So for my pick number two, give me the New Orleans Saints plus three at the New England Patriots. All right, let's go out to Las Vegas, where the Miami Dolphins are getting four points at the Las Vegas Raiders. Listen, Miami, as I mentioned before, got their asses kicked last week. They lost 35 to nothing. Brian Flores is a good coach. They're going to be getting their ass kicked in practice this past week. That's for damn sure. And the Raiders, I, I think they're better than people think. I don't pile on Gruden the way a lot of people do. I think he's a pretty good coach. I think Derek Carr is a good quarterback. I think they have a lot of talent on the roster. Darren Waller on the offensive side of the ball. Max Crosby on the defensive side of the ball, among, among many other players on that team that are solid. I think the Raiders are going to have a good chance to win double digits this year. Content for the division. Probably grab a wild card spot. But I think this is a bad spot for them here. Two wins against the Ravens and Steelers to open up the season, including at Pittsburgh last week. The Raiders, we've seen, they don't handle success well under Gruden, right? They lost to—they got their asses kicked by the Jets two years ago when the Jets were a mediocre 7-9 team um, after having a big win the week before against, I believe, Kansas City. Last year, they had a similar situation where they went into New York. And against the winless Jets team, it took a Hail Mary or a deep pass to the end of the game— to, to pull a win out of their ass. So I think it's a bad spot for, for Vegas. I think Miami not only goes, in, goes into to Las Vegas and covers the four, I think they win the game outright. So for my third pick, give me the Miami Dolphins with Jacoby Brissett as a starter. Full week of practice um, against the Las Vegas Raiders. All right, so my fourth pick. I am taking the Kansas City Chiefs minus seven versus the la chargers you might call it square i know a lot of the professionals love a division rival division game where there were teams getting seven points like the chargers are i know everybody loves the Chargers. they're the they're the the hot to trot team the team that's going to take a leap this year that's going to be good new coach justin herbert blah 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 blah. they looked a lot like the chargers last year the first two weeks i haven't been overly impressed um, they're 1-1. One one. They won a game in Washington, lost a game at home against Dallas uh, last week. Um, Kansas City, I know they haven't covered a meaningful game in ages. I know they're a very public team. I know Andy Reid and Mahomes are good in September, and that's well known. But I think it's almost overcorrected at this point. Um, a lot of, a, a lot of the, the Sharps are on the Chargers, but this line is still at 7 in a lot of books that I've seen. So I am taking the Kansas City Chiefs off a loss, minus 7 at arrowhead against a very young a rookie head coach, a second-year quarterback in Justin Herbert. I'm taking the Kansas City Chiefs minus seven against the LA Chargers as my fourth game. And my fifth and final game for the third week in the row, I'm to one picking them the first two weeks. I am taking the Detroit Lions plus seven and a half versus the Baltimore Ravens. I think Baltimore is in a bad spot here off of a very emotional Monday Night Football win against the Kansas City Chiefs. Lamar Jackson getting the monkey off his back, beating Mahomes, doing fucking backflips into the end zone in that go-ahead touchdown like it's the AFC title game. Calm the fuck down, Lamar. All right? This is just not a good spot at all. I mean, you, you could easily see Baltimore coming into Detroit, taking them lightly, looking at it as, as a... As a a a, a game that's not a conference game. that's not going to affect their conference record. The division is still very much in reach as no team is two and I think the Baltimore Ravens are going to be asleep at the wheel, at least for part of this game. Um, I don't think that they have the offensive firepower. I know they have a strong running game, but the offensive firepower to really just put them away. I think Detroit plays hard. Detroit seemed to forget that you play more than one half of football last week, but Goff seemed to get affected by the rain through an interception late. Um, I think that Goff is still a solid quarterback capable of, of, Keeping the Lions competitive, I think Dan Campbell still has these guys playing hard. So I'm not saying Detroit's going to upset them, but but keep an eye on this game. I'm, I'm going to take Detroit here, plus 7.5, as my fifth game versus the Baltimore Ravens. So to recap, I like Washington football team, plus 7. New Orleans, plus three, plus 3 at the New England Patriots. Miami Dolphins, plus 4 at the Las Vegas Raiders. The Kansas City Chiefs, minus 7 versus the L.A. Chargers. And finally, the Detroit Lions, plus 7.5 versus the Baltimore Ravens. Coming up, some quick reflections on my New York Jets and the New York Yankees next. Okay, so let's talk about the Jets. Let's talk about Zach Wilson, all right? Zach Wilson obviously had a really rough game last week. Zach Wilson has now had um, interceptions in both of his starts so far, okay? I'm not dismissing that. He had a rough go. He now has two touchdowns for the season. He has five interceptions for the season. He's a rookie. Let's take a deep breath. The Jets are 0-2, right? The Jets are not the punchline that they've been under Adam Gase, right? I think Robert Sala is gonna figure it out. I don't love Mike LaFleur's game planning so far as the offensive coordinator, I really don't. I'm a little bit disenchanted by it, but the defense is playing better than I expected. I think Wilson has enough pizzazz in his game. I think he has a high ceiling. I think he's capable of making throws, he's capable of scrambling. He's going to kind of tone down some of the, the cowboy elements of his game. And he's going to put together a good performance one of these next two weeks. I'm not saying they're going to go into Denver and win. That's a, Mile high is an incredibly tough place to play, uh, especially in September when Denver's even just a mediocre team. And I think Denver's a good team this year. Denver's one of my sleeper picks this year. So I don't think the, the chances of of him, go, of him winning game number one in Denver are really high for tomorrow. But he's going to surprise you one of these next few weeks, Zach Wilson. He's going to have a good game. The Jets are going to have a complete game, and they're going to win, well, either against the Broncos, against the Titans, the lowly Falcons in, in London. Um, one of these three or two of these three are going to go the Jets' way. Just watch. But I will say with, with Wilson, the sky isn't falling yet. you got to give him a, a, a much larger sample size of games. He doesn't have all of his weapons yet. Crowder's been out the whole year. Denzel Mims isn't on the field yet consistently. So... It's going to take some time for him to put things together. The offensive line is very much patchwork, um, but I, as I said, I think the Jets are a last place team this year. I picked them to finish last. I picked them to be around a seven or so win team. I still think that's very much a possibility. Just because they're zero and two doesn't mean I'm going to change my pick. Even if they go zero three tomorrow, I think they're they're going to catch fire at some point during this, during the re- this season. They're going to win something like you know three of five, four of seven, something like that as far as as far as games go. So that's my take on the Jets. As for the New York Yankees, this has been one of the most challenging teams that I could ever remember watching in my almost three decades as a Yankee fan, all right? The Yankees, under Boone, I really don't like their identity. They're just inconsistent. I think Boone's stubborn. I don't like the way he constructs lineups. Um, I, I think that they, they're just very streaky. They're a roller coaster. They're up. They're down 13 in a row, uh, a great stretch of 40 games, uh, then getting their ass kicked and losing, you know, 9 of 11 games, losing the division rivals, getting swept by the Blue Jays at Yankee Stadium. I mean, these are all unacceptable things. But right now, as we sit here and I'm recording this episode, Giancarlo Stanton and the team, after winning the first game of, the, of last night, Friday night, with Garrett Cole pitching, just won up in Fenway again and came from behind in the eighth inning with a grand slam and beat Boston, all, all, already have the Series 1 in Boston. If they could sweep them tomorrow, that would, that would send a big fucking message to Boston if they're going to play them again for the wild card round. So we have one more against Boston tomorrow. We have Montgomery on the mound. A good chance to, to, uh, to sweep, for sure. And then we have three important games against Toronto. And Toronto now is two back. They're, they're playing Minnesota now, but they've, they've, they've stumbled a little bit. But if the Yankees could somehow figure out a way... In these, in these, these remaining seven games, you got one against Boston, you have three against Toronto, game again, three against Tampa. Tampa's going to seal up the division. You just need to get one out of three against against Tampa next next weekend. If you could somehow figure out a way to sweep Boston, win two out of three against Toronto, you're not only going to get a wild card spot. You're going to get the first wild card spot for the Yankees. All right, and if somehow you could win two out of three against Tampa, that's going into the postseason red hot. And I like their chances with Derek Cole being able to pitch one one game, one game to get the Yankees into the playoffs. So, I said Derek Cole, I meant Garrett Cole. But, um, anyway, so that's my take on the Yankees. I don't know what to expect. It wouldn't surprise me if somehow we faltered and didn't make the playoffs, but also wouldn't surprise me if we had a run and got to the World Series and won the World Series. Because the components are there. It's just a matter of these players actually realizing their potential both offensively and pitching-wise. So, that's my take on the Yankees. That's my take on the Jets. My NFL picks were there. Coming up next, some reflections about my life as I enter, as I am a few, couple days away from my fortieth birthday, and uh, some philosophical reflections as I look ahead for the coming decades. Next. Okay, so. Let's, let's, let's talk about being on the doorstep of 40. So I am, as I mentioned, just over 48 hours away from turning 40 and it feels big to me. It definitely does. You know, I've heard the expression a while ago, which I got angry about, um, years ago. It takes 40 years to make a man. Um, you could amend that to takes 40 years to make a person, um, because you really, I, I think there's a lot of learning and growing that you do in your 20s and 30s. And even though you think you have a lot of the world figured out and you're adjusted and you, get, you might get um, chippy about the fact that you're, you've been an adult for a long time and then you, and you, and you should have everything figured out, you really don't. And it takes t- till 40 for a lot of different reasons to realize that um, there's a lot to learn, there's a lot of growing to do, there's a lot of maturing that happens emotionally and psychologically. Uh, the back half of your 30s. So um, I will say entering 40 versus 21 versus, I'll say 21 because that's like the legally drinking age, but like your 20s versus your 30s. When I was entering 20, it was just all about me. It was all about having fun. It was all about finishing off college in a positive way, getting a a job, starting to make money. That was my 20s and just having fun, having as much fun as I possibly can, um, chasing women, going out, getting drunk, that was my 20s. And that was kind of the mindset entering 20 or 21. Then entering 30 um, was an interesting place. Jen and I were, were dating for a few years at that point, and we actually went on a break. We broke up about, I don't know, 10, 12, to 14 or so days before my 30th birthday. She threw me a surprise party. It was very sad, even though uh, we, we never really left each other emotionally that, that, that year that we had a break. We really felt like we were more in like a long distance uh, open relationship, long distance meaning that she was living in one apartment in the city and I was living downtown. But entering 30 was different. It was rough. I felt like life was a lot less certain. I didn't know um, even though you know, I, I had a stable job at that point and um, you know, I, I hoped that Jen and I would be back together. It still was just a rockier, a rockier time in life for, for a lot of different reasons. But entering forty, I, I feel very good, very positive. Um, I'll get to the good. I'm going to go through the good, bad, and the ugly. But I'm going to start with the bad and the ugly, and end with the good. Um, so the bad. So first, I'm going to I'm going to talk about um, one thing in, that was kind of negative from my from from the first few decades of my life, um, and then. I guess I'll, I'll throw that into the ugly, but the bad, I'll, I'll just talk about a few bad memories. I'll talk about some specific memories or things that were challenging for me. And then, um, and then I'll talk about a, a bigger macro event that I think was probably unanimously the ugly for anybody who's turning 40, anybody who's turning 50, uh, or, or you know, as, as you're kind of at a midpoint in your life, um, you know, a specific memory, which, which maybe some of you are connecting the dots on that's, that was really particularly bad. And yeah, COVID was COVID was one, but I'm not going to talk about COVID. But I'll, I'm not gonna. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'll, I'll of course reference it as being bad. But um, you know, as far as as ugly, I'm going to get into um, more kind of personal demon stuff. But um, just again, just a quick overview that there's more topic for another day. But as far as bad goes, so I was, I've lived a pretty fortunate life at this point. I had a happy childhood. My parents are still married. Um, I was in a loving household, taught very high self-esteem from an early age. Um, feel that I've, I've lucked out, both from an intelligence and a looks perspective, relative to the rest of the population, as saying as humbly as possible. Um, so I've had a good life. I've had a good life overall. Um, and I wasn't bullied really much in my childhood. Um, I was a late bloomer physically. I was 5'2 when I entered high school. Um, I'm no giant now, but I'm closest to five eleven. Um, so I grew, you know, eight plus inches when I was in high school. Um, so even though I was small going into high school, I, I, I I've always been likable. I think so. Um, I wasn't bullied often. I mean, there was one kind of doofus of a kid in like tenth grade that tried to bully me for a day, and it just didn't really land really well. <laughs> the, guy, the guy's a fucking idiot now, even still, um, but it just didn't land well, it didn't stick. It just it didn't have any any legs to it. Um but I do remember being bullied when I was in 7th grade. Um and what happened was there was a table, a lunch table that I sat at with friends of mine. That was in a good section of the lunchroom uh in my in my in my middle school. And I went to a, a, a middle school called West Hollow L, uh Middle School. It's in Melville, New York. I grew up in Dix Hills on Long Island. Um my my middle school was was West Hollow. And you know, I was at a table and I always had kind of a little bit of self-consciousness being mixed race, but, but my school was pretty, was relatively mixed um, for being a, a suburban school. So I, I didn't encounter a ton of racial stuff, but there was this guy and he was this, um, who he is now, and I'm not friends with him. He's, this, he's, he's a suggested friend on Facebook. All right, I only knew him really in middle school. He went to some private Catholic school for high school. He's this good-looking Italian guy that's probably connected to the mafia. I'll just say that, and um, you know, wealthy guy. You know, was was in const- you know, Family was in construction. He's in construction now. Went to good schools, good good co- good college and whatnot. And uh, you know, it's this affable guy from 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 most people that you would ask from. That I grew up with, but I think the guy was a complete douche for the time that I ended up encountering him in middle school. So I was sitting having lunch one day. He tapped me on the shoulder. I looked to one side, then he was on the other side. And what he was trying to do was displace my table because there was a group of uh, really kind of stuck up princess girls to to the table behind that were the attractive girls in middle school that were developing earlier that he and his friends wanted to sit near. And he said, hi, you have to get up and basically like kick me and, and my friends out of that table. And I'll never forget like looking back and like the girls and the guys at that age. And I, and I wasn't like I didn't get women at that stage of my life. And I remember feeling very isolated um, and felt very low as I got kicked out of that table as this guy really like in a condescending way as these girls are giggling behind him. Uh, booted us out of the table. So that's one of the worst memories I have from childhood. And that's one of the worst memories and I've had a good childhood, but I'll take that for for, for what it's worth. Um, The other negative memory I have is my college girlfriend. So I dated her most of senior year into a few months after we graduated, all right? She's Italian and German uh, descent. Um, her, Her maternal side was Brooklyn Italians. And she was a very, like, kind of smiley, happy-go-lucky girl in college. But as we started, as we graduated, um, her parents were separated. And I met her dad, but she always had this weird way of not introducing me as her boyfriend. I don't even know if she classified me as a boyfriend to to a lot of her acquaintances and certainly none of her family because her family was racist. Her parents were very... um, were complete bigots. Her grandparents who she lived with after graduation were Italian Americans. and as I've mentioned before, I'm a, a half Italian. Um, Jen is mostly Italian and Italians by nature, my extended family included, are not very tolerant of people that are people of color. And I'm you know half black. I might as well have been uh, you know Nigerian. As, as it related to being accepted in, in my my ex's family, so she would never even tell her grandparents when she would stay at my parents' house. So I was living at home for a few months after college. She would never even tell them because it just it, it wasn't acceptable that we were dating. I was just like a ghost. I wasn't even a, a figure that they knew of at all, which was really embarrassing. But um, you know, her dad met me. I think her dad kind of got a whiff of the fact that we were probably dating. And I remember at one point there was a story where we went out, my uh, my ex and I, with uh, her college roommate and another friend of ours from college, a guy, who, and we went out in the city. And everybody came back, and we stayed. They stayed at my parents' house again. This is before I lived in the city. Um, and she basically intimated to me that he used like racial slurs and describing me and how he was just intolerant of 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 she and I dating long term, and that was something that she felt like passionately about um, and why we wouldn't be able to work out and it it created a lot of stress in her life. And I really resented the fact that I didn't think she had a backbone um, at all as it related to um, our relationship. And that really hurt me. That was another moment that stung me. And as I mentioned, I've luckily never been called the N-word. I really really haven't even been close to, uh, to my face. That's an example of where I think I was called it Offline, But one other last story about the N-word. Um, so in college, we did a road trip up to St. Louis up to Wash U from Emory. And Emory to, to Atlanta to, to, to Wash U, which is in St. Louis, is about seven hours. Um, we stopped in Nashville, which was about a halfway point in between. And there was, there were, there was a 20 of us in the fraternity that were caravanning up. Half of us stayed in like a hotel. The other half like... Went around the honky tonk bars and spent some time at Vanderbilt and visited our local fraternity chapter in Vanderbilt. And in the other, in my fraternity, I mean, I was not part of a black fraternity in college. But anyway, so my fraternity was was relatively was as mixed for white fraternities as you can get. Didn't feel that I I um, wanted to be part of the black Greek system. Because it was a, kind of a separate Greek system, and you know, identity-wise, I I, I didn't like to be pigeonholed as a, as monoracially black. But again, it's a discussion for another day. But um, anyway, so I had a, a friend, another friend who was a person of color who was in the the cohort of people that went to Vanderbilt's campus. And what happened there, and and this story was told when the groups got together as we were in um, Washu the, the next day. That there was a there was a. You know, there were five of them or so walking around or a half dozen or so walking around the fraternity house and my one white guy in my fraternity who happened to be Jewish actually got pulled aside when the black friend wasn't nearby and and he got tapped by one of the Van, one of the the Vanderbilt uh, fraternity brothers of the same of the, the other chapter and said, "Hey, you guys let niggers in the fraternity?" Like that's what he said. Um, and like almost like upset and 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 like surprised, um, was this guy? It just goes to show you how real racism is. But that's you know again, it didn't happen to me. That wasn't I wasn't the person that was being referred to as that. But if that were me, there's no doubt that um, this guy wouldn't have seen my racial nuance and not used the same kind of comment and question directed at, at this other fraternity brother of mine. So um, so that's some of the, the the bad kind of on a on a micro level uh, over my first forty years of life. Uh, the biggest bad moment, I mean, COVID has been shitty for 18 months. We're we're starting to slowly come out of the worst of it. Um, We we have come out of the worst of it a a while ago, but it's starting to become less and less relevant, which is good. But the biggest thing way above COVID was 9-11 as an event. And I'm going to talk about how 9-11, I didn't lose anybody um, in my life at the time. Um, And so I was you know, even being from the New York area, I still didn't. I obviously was in college when that day when it happened. It was 2001, so I was almost 20 at that point. I was a junior in college. I told the story on social media. I, I did do a 9/11 podcast episode a couple of years ago, um, which goes into a little bit more about about 9/11 and and my thoughts at that time. But 9/11 was 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 absolutely awful, and I'm going to get into some more about that. After I, I go through it's the ugly and the good, um, because because I, I did watch a recent documentary that 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 stirred up some thinking on that. So, as far as the ugly, so for the ugly for me in in these these this first part of my life, um, was I I gambled and drank more than I wanted to, um, spe- specifically in my twenties and early thirties. Uh, that led to kind of addiction and compulsion issues, regrettable behaviors that. Made folks uncomfortable, hurt people, had major effects for those in the blast radius in my life. Again, it's a story for another day. Uh, I don't want to go into the details now, but I, I don't shy away from talking about the fact that I'm in 12-step recovery. Um, I have been sober from my um, addiction for, it'll be almost five years. Um, it'll be five years in the middle of October. And realistically, it'll be, you know, from some of the more severe behaviors, almost six years. So um, that's the ugly um, it's something that I, I wish I didn't have to go through from the perspective of the damage it caused. Um, but I will say, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm going to end with the good, my life is, is fucking blessed. I am grateful for it. Uh, my life is good. It's exactly where I would want it. And I wouldn't be able to get there without the ugly that I mentioned. Um, you know, when, I, when I say my life is good, I have a beautiful, lovely wife. Who's been my partner and best friend for almost a decade and a half? in Jen, um, we have beautiful children. We have two beautiful girls with a baby boy coming. Um, I'm happy having two kids with a third on the way. Um, Jen and I got married in our in my early 30s, her late 20s, after being together for seven years. Uh, I think that timing worked out great. And um, you know, some people get married earlier, some people get married later. Uh, I think I started having kids an age that was fine. I mean, I think very similar, on par, maybe slightly uh, later than average for, for, for my generation and demographic, but I was 34, almost 35, when Jen was pregnant with Eloise, which I'm good with, And and our third is going to be born when I'm barely 40, so I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, friendships. I have great friendships. I have some old friendships. I have some new friendships. I'm really excited with the, the, the group of people in my life who I'm closest with now. And I feel they're very authentic and, and deep relationships, both the new ones and the old ones. And um, my job and career are in a great place. I work for a great company. I'm thriving in my role. Uh, it's early. I have a lot more growing to do in that role, but incredible upside and opportunity to make a lot of money. Uh, live in a house that was a great buy in one of the most affluent towns in the country in a place where the, literally the real estate market is going directly up uh, at like a 90 degree um, angle. Um, it's just unbelievable how the value of homes has been. And to live here, we just feel incredibly blessed. And just the health and safety component of, of where I am in life. I mean, you, know, you can't control that kind of stuff as much as you think um for you or your loved ones especially others in your life but they have been very blessed to not be affected in a major way health and and, and safety wise so um that's kind of the, the the bad the ugly and the good uh the ugly and the bad have built character for me um and as I step into my 40s it's kind of a weird decade from this standpoint assuming you die at some point of natural causes and you live a full life and avoid any major accident or tragedy, even with a healthy life, somewhere in this decade, I'm going to cross the halfway point of my life. All right. So, so even if I live till 90, 95, in the next five to seven years, I'm going to be closer to the end than the beginning. And that's kind of a hard thing to, to think about. I know, you know, I, I could think that, oh, wow. I mean, like, I'm much, I'm all of a sudden going to be closer to 60 than 21, and in some ways, 21 feels like so long ago. So much has happened. But I can remember my 21st birthday like it was yesterday. And to think that I'm even closer to 60 now is a very sobering thing for me. Um, but, and life is really interesting. So you go from being – from you start life and you have your parents and your grandparents and they're your world. And you can't even really fathom. You have like visions of having a partner at some point and aspirations for it. But that's your life. Then all of a sudden, you meet a significant other um, and then – like you fall in love with them. You go through the wedding circuit, you get married yourself and boom, you're all of a sudden you're on the other side of that. And that's a strange thing to look at. And like, wow, like I'm already on the other side of that. Like life is all the, the kind of the big milestones that have sort of happened already. Um, engagement, marriage, first born second kid born. Like a lot of that stuff, like, you know, all the schooling stuff is done. And like a lot of life now is as much as, there's a level of predictability around, you know, hopefully your kids. It's still a lot of ways like a blank canvas, and you know, life can have to take so many different directions the next few decades. But like, you know, you go from being like your parents and your grandparents to all of a sudden like now where I'm at, where it's like you have your parents in your life and your kids in your life and your spouse, and then at some point it's just like your spouse and your and only your kids and your and your parents are gone, and you know that's that's on my radar. Maybe not in the next decade but likely the next twenty to twenty five years and there's something really sad about that and um, just to think about like the 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 somebody's to picture mortality of the, the people that brought you into this world is, is is tough at times and having kids really does change your life on, on the next episode Jen and I did a, an informal pillow talk which I'm going to release we had on some really deep and heavy topics um, as we as we reflected about like kind of some you know life and death and Parenting and all this stuff and the fragility of life and how you think about life and the vulnerability you feel having kids. Um, and, and a lot of what, what's really stirred this up for me is um, we're, we're about 20 years removed from, from the 9-11. Uh, so for, we're about two weeks removed from the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And some quick reflections on that. I mean, as I mentioned, I did an episode of 9-11 two years ago if you want to check that out. But I recently watched this National Geographic documentary that was on Hulu. And it was the best 9/11 documentary I've ever seen, and I've seen other documentaries. Some of them were, were very good. They focused on the terrorists, they focused on a lot of the plane victims, kind of the the, the, the the events of that day and how the attacks happened. And this one was interesting because it focused on civilians and first responders and had both the victims and success stories and a lot of the survival stories of the day. And um, you know, 9/11 connection for me now versus the past is just different as I turned 40. Um, you know, I moved to Battery Park City, which is right around 9-11. Right when, when Jen and I had our break when I turned 30, that's where I moved. Uh, and it was kind of cheap, affordable housing, close to the water, and it was about a decade removed from 9-11 at that point. So you didn't really have the remnants in a negative way. Yeah, they were still constructing Freedom Tower. They were still con- constructing the 9 Memorial. But you didn't feel that the you know the 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 stench in the air from from the the heaviness of that day and all the tragedy that happened. So it felt like a good place to live, and it was, and it was some really good memories as we left the city there and we we adopted our Bruno when we lived there, and Jen and I when we got back together, we moved down there. So it's interesting though, like I have so many memories now. You know, when I first watched these nine eleven documentaries, I didn't have any history living down there. Because it was like mid-2000s, a few years after it happened, when I watched these documentaries. Now, I have a whole history of like living down there, working down there, going to therapy down there. Um, And I didn't work down there. I should say commuting from down there to to go to work. But it was just – it's just a whole different perception. Like looking at the footage from that day in this documentary, it's literally like where we walked all the time. Like walking from Whole Foods or walking around to go to the gym or just – just want, like there's some footage where the debris, the, the south or north tower fell and people were running for cover and going into buildings. And it's the World Financial Center, which is right next to where we lived. And that just hits me hard seeing that. It just hit me harder seeing that. And I got more emotional seeing that. And just, you know, as a parent, um, as a husband, thinking about the, the horror that the people on the planes and in the buildings went through that day and having to end their, having their life end tragically and unexpectedly it's it's harder and harder now as I'm a parent and the relationships with, with our kids are crystallizing and Jen and I have been together for almost 15 years and we've been married. I could just put myself in the shoes a lot more easily than I could have when 9-11 first happened and I was just, you know, a college kid with parents lived in the New York area where I was concerned, but it just wasn't the level of of emotional heaviness that I experienced now watching it through through the lens of of what I just mentioned. So um, sometimes thinking about the tragedy is unbearable at times. So talking about waterworks, I mean, I'll admit it, like it's more than a tearjerker to watch this. If you're not ready to cry. If you're a person in touch touch with your emotions, you're going to fucking cry watching it. You just are. It's just like, especially if you're in a position in life where you have a partner or kids and you could picture what pain that they went through that day on all sides of it. It's, it's, it's really something else. So I highly recommend it. I hear there's a Netflix one to watch that goes more into the terrorists. Um, you know, it's one of those things I, I can't turn away from from watching. That I know some people can't emotionally handle stuff like that. Um, I just think it's a really important part of the history of this country and it's and the world, so to speak. And and it's and it is the ugly and it is the bad. It is a really negative stain in the first forty years of my life, um, and it's something I'll never forget. And it's something that eventually I'm, I'm going to struggle to tell our kids about it. But it's it's an important thing to to share the story and the perspective on. Uh, even if somebody wasn't affected to a large degree that day. So um, coming up next, totes. Tote number one. When you first get to a restaurant with either your spouse or friends, if you send the server away, it gives a license for lesser service. So meaning... If you're not ready to order your drinks or your food, if you ask for a few more minutes, unless the, the server knows you and the, the restaurant is empty, expect lesser service. That, that server all of a sudden has a signal, you're just here to socialize. I could put you on my B list as far as servicing tables. So you got to be, I think one of the first things you do when you get to a place, you really have to get it. As much as you might be excited to be with the people that you're, that you're with, you're you got to just like look at the menu, get an idea of what you're least going to order for drinks, appetizers, eventually get to the entree because you're sending that server away. My 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 take here is you're, it's a license for lesser service. Tote number two. So I'm a big fan of ice cream floats, but ice cream floats are the best, the first five or 10 minutes they're made. After that, they're complete junk. So this is why, and it's a really easy concept. I, it just, the light bulb for this just went on for me recently. Um, Jen Eloise and I went to a local football game for for the high school where they dominated the team. That's an, that's another another story, not 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 the major part of this. But Emily was at home with with the with um, with my in laws because she's too young to go to a, a night football game. It was a really good time. We went out for ice cream after, and I was in the mood for a float, so I got a Coke float. I, I I'm a big fan of either Coke or root beer floats. They're both phenomenal, but the beginning of, of it is really key because that's when you're tasting the soda that's cold. And the ice cream hasn't melted into the, into the soda yet. Like part of the beauty of a float is having the ice cream subtly mixed into the soda. Otherwise, it just becomes this like really mushy drink. So my tote here is that ice cream floats are crucial to be mostly consumed the first five or 10 minutes of, after getting them. Tote number three. It's interesting. Like for some reason, people have a tendency to get stuck either wearing a fashion item or having some kind of a fashion trend stick from their formative time in life, their 30s, when they are kind of coming of age, starting a family, getting married. And they'll, and they'll keep this for decades and decades, even long after that fashion has, has um, kind of worn out its welcome. And I'll tell you what I, what I mean. There's a guy who lives on our street. He's probably in his early 60s. He has a haircut that looks like he's in Huey Lewis in the News from the 1980s. Right? So, you, you do the math, this guy was probably born somewhere around 1960. He came of age in the, the late 80s or early 90s when, like, kind of the mullet, kind of shaggy hair on the top, like, haircut was in. This guy now is, you know, 60 something years old, hasn't let it go, and it looks silly. So, for those of you who are in your 30s, like me, on the approaching 40, maybe even late 20s, be very careful. All right. It's okay to listen to music and be nostalgic about the past, especially because I think the music from today is junk, and I love the music from the 90s and early 2000s, but you got to don't don't cling on to fashion trends, haircuts and the like that are going to be outdated in a few decades from now just because they're memorable now and they're they're associated with a happy youthful time in your life. Don't be Bob from down the street. Tote number 4. I guess this is kind of a question or I don't know if this is a question or a statement, but I think – I'll keep it as a, as, a, as a take. These baseball players that wear these like fucking 10-pound gold chains look ridiculous. All right, listen. I get it. You're a major league baseball player. You're an all-star. You're good. You could afford very expensive things. You could afford gold earrings and necklaces and all the, all this stuff. To wear this when you're playing the majority of your sporting endeavors in 80 and 90-degree weather looks fucking ridiculous. And I can't imagine it's good athletically as you're pitching and throwing a ball 95 miles an hour to be get hit in the face by a gold chain or run around the base pass wearing a gold chain or trying to field wearing a gold chain. It's stupid looking. Save it for after the game when you're going out to the club, when you're getting on your private jet, when you're with your family out to dinner. That's when you want to wear the gold chains and the earrings. Save it on the baseball field. So my take number four is gold chains that are heavy have no place for the baseball diamond. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham Podcast. Please make sure you are subscribed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate and review me. And finally, please follow me on Twitter, at ChrisNHamm. Your support and feedback are incredibly valuable. Tell your friends, family, colleagues, spread the word. Take it easy, friends.